Welcome to The Women. I'm your host, Rose Reed, recording at home. And I feel like many listeners may feel that starting this week and just within the span of a few days, normal life has completely changed. I'm in New York and every single day things have shifted dramatically. Between Monday and Friday, I went from being one of millions of New Yorkers who commute to riding mostly empty trains and being one of eight people in my working space that usually has three or 400 people. I even saw an old friend of mine for coffee before we all began to self-quarantine. And she and I grew up together in Atlanta and we were talking about how we were gonna prepare for what we thought was the week to come. And we didn't hug each other and it was painful. And as I'm grappling with this new normal, working from home, canceled plans, postponing events, postponing trips, and limiting all my social interactions. I'm also flooded with questions about this pressing public health issue and the women who are fighting it. The crunch to the emergency department that we thought would decompress actually has not. It's just more and more people are coming in. So there's so many people that need to be tested. There's so many people that are sick that the the numbers are growing daily. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. And this week, as well as next week, we've changed our regularly planned episodes to talk about what feels most important right now. What should we know about the spread of the coronavirus and how do we protect ourselves against COVID-19? And who are the women who are on the front lines fighting this pandemic? Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Antoinette Ward. Okay. I'm Antoinette Ward, um, a chief of advanced practice providers at a large healthcare center right here in Atlanta. I'm the representation of emergency medicine for the organization, and I'm the representation of nurse practitioners and physicians assistants within my department. Antoinette has been in nursing for over 25 years. She's the chief of advanced practice provider emergency medicine at a major hospital in Atlanta. I cover three local hospitals as the chief. We have a staff of a total of 80. And then we've got oh, about 150 physicians that we work with also. Antoinette has her doctorate in nursing, and she's been charged with setting up a testing site for COVID-19 in Atlanta. Antoinette and her colleagues set up a facility separate from the hospital in under 72 hours. They wear full protective gear and are treating an increasing influx of patients as they learn about this new virus, how to treat it, and continue to ration tests for it. Can you give me an idea of how many patients come through every week? Between all four sites, probably close to about 10,000 patients a week. And have you noticed that number change in the last month or two? That number has changed in the last month or two. That number is changing daily. Um, In one of our smaller emergency departments, they have doubled the volume of patients that are walking in every day. COVID has changed how we practice and what we do. The people that are walking in, are they people who are nervous because they have cold symptoms or are they people who are exhibiting the symptoms of fever, cough, respiratory issues? We have a combination of all of the above. We have a lot of people who are just maybe have some upper respiratory symptoms that they may even have typically this time of the year and they're nervous. Then we have patients who are coming in who are genuinely sick and who've had genuinely um, real exposure 
that has been documented. Um, we have a lot of patients that we've had to put on ventilators who some of them were waiting on test results to come back. We call them persons under investigation, PUI patients. So it, the, we have the entire gamut, and that's the hard part for us is sort of the triaging of what's going on with this patient who needs immediate care for the symptoms they're having versus someone who's nervous about a friend of a friend with a party they may have attended two weeks ago. So, you know, we have all of these people who converge on us, and it's our job to figure out who do we need to take care of first and how do we take care of these people and keep ourselves safe. How are you keeping yourself safe? How have your protocols changed in the last week? Oh, my gosh. So we've changed quite a bit um, because of the exposure. Anyone with any upper respiratory symptoms, until we're able to triage them properly, become a possible COVID patient. So we're, we're wearing gowns, we're wearing masks, we're wearing our high-level protective gear. Um, we're washing, washing, washing our hands 24-7. That's the most important thing we can do. We're asking our patients to, when they come in, to let us know right away if they have a symptom so we can put a mask on them. We're actually being very diligent about the patients that are in the hospital. We're limiting the number of visitors that can come in to try to minimize exposure. Many of us are working longer shifts to help out each other. All of the school systems in Metro Atlanta are currently closed, so we're switching shift times around to help our colleagues with small children. Some of them are not able to get in. We're sharing um, babysitters. We're offering I have an 18-year-old. We're offering them up as babysitters, the ones who are experienced <laughs> babysitters. Um, we're doing everything we can to support each other. Um, the chair of our department is actually we're sending out to a few of our colleagues some meals. Some meals have them delivered to them who are quarantined and do have, not have family here. So we're trying to support our patients and support ourselves. We realize that if we can keep ourselves healthy and have a semblance of a work-life balance that we can take good care of our patients because the numbers are increasing daily as we speak. And this might sound like a really naive question, but are you seeing the persons under investigation and people who could be positive with corona or COVID, do you see those numbers increasing Yes, because a lot of things happened that I think people don't realize. When Italy closed its border, right before that happened, all of the Americans there flew home that were there. Some were visiting, some were um, there for business or, or, or different reasons. So you have a lot of countries who told um, their Americans to come home. And so a lot of these people actually live in our local Atlanta area. So not only did they come home, but um, many of them did come home with upper respiratory symptoms, some shortness of breath and fever. So we're seeing those patients and they're flying in daily. They're coming from other places. We have patients who are coming in that have been exposed to them unknowingly. So the number is rising and we have not as an area started active testing to even know that and to get a grip on it. So we're, we're very behind the eight ball around here as far as testing these patients. So they flew in, you know, They've been flying in for several weeks, and they've been in the general public. When did it become clear to you, oh, this is, this is going to be an issue here in my city and in my hospital? 
I think about a week ago, we started having the conversation that we were going to implode unless we did something. So the decision was made pretty quickly that we needed to do something and we had to figure out how to do it quickly. So I would say within the past week, we decided we have to have some area outside of the emergency department just to try to see patients um, who are suspicious for COVID. So we did open an ambulatory COVID testing center and it was driven by our patients that had called into infectious disease department looking for help, looking for resources, and it's triaged by a registered nurse. She goes through a battery of questions with the patients and then decides they need to come in. Um, at that point, they come into the testing center, they have an appointment. We set the center up literally within 48 hours. It's an entire clinic that we set up in 48 hours between providers, the doctors, nurse practitioners, TAs like myself, and a, a care team really just sort of got rolling. We um, started testing patients and the numbers are just growing daily. The crunch to the emergency department that we thought would decompress actually has not. It's just more and more people are coming in. So there's so many people that need to be tested. There's so many people that are sick that the, the numbers are growing daily. And do you remember, like, in your personal life, listening to something on the radio, reading an article where all on your own you realized COVID is going to come to Atlanta? I think for me, it, that turning point is when I saw a lot of European com countries, several decided to close their borders. And I actually do have some colleagues, and I've spoken to them, and one person in particular I spoke with, he told me, he said, you guys just do not understand how big this is. Was that a phone call or an email exchange with your colleague? It, it actually started out, I, I believe, with a Facebook post that I saw that they posted. And I remember saying, oh, okay, I haven't talked to him in a while. And we sort of went back and forth a little bit on Facebook. And um, I asked him, I said, is it okay that we talk for a moment? And he said, okay, sure. This is actually someone who did a international exchange with our organization and I had worked with him closely when he was in his residency on some research and he's now um, an emergency room physician so we just talked very briefly and he he really told me he said you guys just don't understand what you're in for and and he's based in Italy he is based in Italy yes and at that point um this this was probably a week ago and he was very overwhelmed so for me, I think I became very anxious at that point, saying we have to move and we have to move fast. What's it been like for you? Do you see yourself doing different things when you go into when you go into work, washing your hands more? Are you wearing a, a mask more often? Well, yes, especially when I'm working in the COVID clinic. <laughs> the way that it works there is we wear two masks. We wear an N95 mask. We wear a face shield over that. And then we're wearing a gown, two sets of gloves, hair bonnet, and um, covers our feet. And so what, the N95 mask is not to be taken on and off. So the N95 mask, and we gown, we take our gowns off and re-robe for every room. So it's called doffing and downing. So we take everything off and put it back on for every patient. So could you imagine doing this about 30 times a day? In the meantime, everything you do, every step, you have to wash your hands. So I walk in the room with gloves on, 
I introduce myself to the patient. I do not shake their hands. I have some paperwork in my hand. I put it down. I take that glove off. I wash my hands. I put gloves on again. Then I, of course, have an exchange with the patient. I may listen to them, do a nasal swab and an oral swab on them, collect that swab, take the gloves off, wash my hands. So every step of the way of everything you do, you're washing your hands and you're putting back on gloves again. And then you take off the gown once the patient has left the room. I knock on the door, actually. We have an escort with the mask that's dressed also in high-level um, protective equipment who escort the patient. With the, the patient has the mask on. The provider that's escorting the patient has all of their protective gear on, and they escort the patient out the door. There's a lot of costume changes and, uh, a in lot this of costume situation. Changes. Yes. So we're constantly washing our hands throughout the entire process. But the N95 mask, we do not take off. We, there's a shortage of masks. So we literally keep that mask on, and you only take that off lunchtime when we eat and have, of course, we drink water, hydrate. We get another mask, and we put that mask on for another however many hours. So take yesterday, for example. I started, I saw my first patient at 8 a.m., I think I ate lunch at 1, so mask on from 8 to 1. I take the mask off, my gear off, of course, after that patient. Go to the bathroom, drink water, eat pretty quickly, finish charting on patients, start over again, put a new mask on at 1.30, and I saw patients until 7.30 last night, I believe. And that's, that's our routine all day. So I'm working with a team of, but it was only the three of us yesterday, everybody chips in. We work really, really hard. We actually have the president of one of our divisions there who acted as our technician for the day. She ran errands for us. She escorted patients in, patients out. She checked patients in. And every it was a complete team effort to make sure every patient was seen. I'm wondering if you could describe what the testing center looks like. Um, is it set up in a parking lot? Is it a tent? Or have you turned a part of the emergency room into a testing center? No, it's actually um, in another site, off-site, about two miles down the street from the emergency department. We took um, a building that was not being used as often, but it was actually used sometimes. And it's an older clinic that we have in our healthcare setting. It, it has 16 rooms, um, a desk, a check-in area. So it, it looks like you're the clinic that you would go to to visit your primary care doctor or any other physician. And the only difference is there's a lot of finish, um, security at the door, and you're handed a mask upon approaching. <laughs> and. Have you been able to get tests easily and get the testing results easily? No, we have not. <laughs> it's not been very easy um, at all. Um, we're, we're very concerned about running out. We're in touch with the state very regularly. We're in touch with LabCorp, with Quest. We're, you know, doing everything we can to, to get tests from different places where we're We've pulled all the tests that we have. I don't know the, the exact amount. So no, it's, it's not easy. It's an ongoing conversation and that's our biggest fear is what happens when we run out and waiting for more. 
And results right now vary depending on where, who's doing the test. Um, our local state level is, they do the test in batches daily. They can only test so many people a day. So it, getting test results is, is not easy at all. Um, when the test is run, we have to check with the state and ask them, you know, have you ran this test we sent you yet? They'll tell us yes or no. They'll tell us when the date is. So no matter how efficient we are, we're still at someone else's mercy. We're working on developing an in-house testing, and hopefully we'll have that up and running. We've been told within a week or so that will help us quite a bit. And is it just a swab? What does the test look like? The test is actually it's very similar to a flu test. The one that we're doing, it's a nasal swab. It's, very, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Um, we go up <laughs> in one of your nares. And we use this alone um, for better of lack of describing it. It's like a lone medical Q-tip. And um, we go up and get a nice sample, twirl it around a little bit, um, wait a couple of seconds, and we pull out. And then we do an oral swab also, which is sort of like getting a, a strep test. Go all the way back in the throat so we make you gag a little bit. And get a sample and come out. Yes, it's, it's somewhat uncomfortable. I've made a few people cry in an effort to make sure we're getting a really good sample. <laughs> and it's okay. Wow. No, no one complains. They know it's with love. <laughs> they do. Whether it's in the home, in the community, and within the front lines of our public health care system, so much of this burden and this education, and even how you describe adding a little bit of levity, falls on the shoulders of women. Have, I think have it you does process that. Yeah, how do you how do you grapple with that? Oh, I, I think about it a little bit in the sense that we're nurturers by nature. So it's in innate in me to say, how can I help my fellow man? And and not that men don't, but I think that we're more um, reactive in that sense of what can I do for the next person? Whose kids can I feed? Who can I help? And I'm a big believer in, you know, if you help a woman, you've helped a family. How long do you anticipate this level of uh, awareness and this level of patient intake and volume to, to go on? How, how long are, is your team preparing for? We're actually in it for the long haul. We have um, daily huddle meetings and I actually have one today where we Skype or Zoom each other, and we, we talk about this. Currently, we're planning for the next um, six months, and that's just being... Six months? Know, we're Yeah, we're planning for six months. We have to. We've um, all travel that we normally take. Um, the hospitals, I said, we see travel right now, especially any conferences. We're, we're here. Yeah, we plan for the next six months. So even if things, when we hope things will get better in those six months, but we have to think about the long haul of taking care of our patients, our staff, the aftermath of this. Um, there's a financial hit. There's the economic hit. We're asking everyone to work extra shifts already. We're asking them to work longer shifts. We're asking them to be away from their family. So we're planning to you know, definitely take care of patients that long and to take care of each other that long. We don't know what's going to happen after that, but that's, that's the language that we're using. Is there one thing that you think uh, listeners should really know about and take to heart when it comes to 
preparing for the next few months and, you know, taking social distancing seriously and, and making other choices for themselves and for their communities? For me, I think a big take-home message would be we have to take care of each other. We have to take care of our neighbors. We have to take care of each other's kids, of our elderly. We have to call people that we haven't called lately. We have to check on each other. That's going to be going to make the difference for all of us. We absolutely have to take care of each other. For me, it's one thing to be a healthcare provider. I love what I do. I wouldn't trade it for the world. But I'm also a mother, a daughter, a sister, a partner, a neighbor. So every aspect of my life, I'm thinking, who do I need to call? Who haven't I seen recently? Do I need to make sure they're okay? So we have to make those phone calls to each other. That's going to be very important It's just those phone calls. And, of course, we have to practice social distancing, but it does not mean that we cannot reach out to each other. And that's, that's a very important. We can pick up the phone and we can call each other and say, how are you doing, and make sure we're okay. We can be a listening ear. If you know someone that's being that's very stressed out and having a lot of overwhelming feelings right now, which I think is a lot of people, if you have the capacity, just listen to them, be there for them. And we can do that within, once again, the privacy of our home, but just reaching out. It could be by social media. It could be by phone call. It could even be by text to say, I'm thinking of you. But I think it's important to just connect with people on other levels when we cannot connect with them physically. Um, all international travel, so many things affect everyone, no matter who you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter anything. This is affecting everybody. But especially for those who are healthcare professionals, they're literally putting their bodies on the front line. How are you grappling with that? I'm going to be honest with you. It's a struggle. It's, an, it's a struggle. I had a trip planned. My husband and I, we take a trip every year. We were going to Thailand, and we've had to cancel our trip. So it's an internal struggle. It's a work-life struggle, but we know that, you know, we're doing the right thing right now. I understand um, I have not met one single person that hasn't been impacted by this. So you try to see the brighter part of this. We've talked about doing some type of staycation at home with the kids and, you know, alternatives, but it, it is definitely a struggle of how do you stay happy? How do you keep your peace when there's a lot going on? There's a lot of people who are very anxious. And to be realistic, there are people that are dying and some that will die. This has not um, begun to hit its peak yet. So it's, it, very much a struggle for me right now, if I can be honest with you. You know, when I can come home and have some type of, of peace at home, that makes a, a difference. I do have an 18-year-old who's a senior in high school who most of her events have at this point have been canceled. We don't even know about senior prom. My heart goes out to her. So it's definitely oh, a struggle. I, didn't, yeah. I haven't even thought about kids' proms yet. Mm-hmm. Does she already have so, a dress? She's already got a special dress we ordered and paid a lot of money for it. <laughs> she's made a lot of plans, though. We don't, we don't know how that looks. You know, this is her senior year. This A lot should happen for her right now that may not even take place this year.
I have a little just um, lightning round. Uh, I like to say that this is truth or truth, that we go light after we go deep. Is there a song that you're listening to that gets you pumped up or calms you down? Yes, actually. <laughs> so I'm a big Stevie Wonder fan, and I had him on my Pandora recently. I, I love listening to Stevie Wonder music. It helps me to feel better. I can dance to it, and yeah, just it, it really makes a difference in my world. You made me think about um, songs in the key of life and how they just can transport you to that happy place. Yes, that entire album, yes. I believe when I fall in love with you, it will last forever. Yes, and I also, one of my favorites is um, All I Do is Think About You. And I think that song is a favorite of mine because, believe it or not, it's not even a romantic sense. I think of it often in my patience, like all I do is think of you and ways to keep you healthy. <laughs> um, I just want everybody to know it's all about love right now. We have to absolutely spread love. And as women, I believe that we're we're at the forefront of that. We get it on a lot of levels. So. As a mother of two boys, um, I constantly talk to them about being vulnerable and loving each other and loving their peers and loving their teachers and loving their family. So if we could just spread love on every level, I think as a country, as a nation, as a population in the world, we will get through this. Is that love for your fellow man the reason you became a nurse? It's absolutely why I became a nurse, yes. Did, was that a process or was there one event that, that made you realize, oh, this is my calling? Well, I actually got into nursing because I remember my dad said to me, you, I was an engineering major first. And my dad said, well, engineering is okay, but nurses will always work. Why don't you do that? And I adore my parents so much that I said, okay, and I switched to nursing. So I went into it with this intent of having a job. And very quickly, I learned that I love people. I love touching people. So even when I transitioned to a leadership role over time, I never gave up the clinical aspect of it because just seeing a person, helping them to feel better, some days are easier than others, but that's my goal, to help people feel better, to get them healthy. Lovely. So nice to meet you. I can't <laughs> wait to, to see you and bump elbows with you when I'm in Atlanta next. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Can you please reach out to me? You have that contact number. Can I save the number that you texted me from? Yes, ma'am. That would be wonderful. You take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. We will be interviewing women on the front lines of the coronavirus and COVID-19 for the next upcoming weeks. If you need assistance, visit cdc.gov or call your doctor, and you can also call the Public Health Department at 1-866-PUB-HEALTH, P-U-B-H-E-A-L-T-H. I was introduced to Antoinette through a longtime family friend, Sonia Green, who is a physician assistant and leads a primary care practice at a major hospital in Atlanta. This past weekend, I spoke to Sonia, and I wanted to end this episode with excerpts from our conversation. Sonia, like so many other healthcare professionals, although not in emergency medicine, is navigating the pandemic as a practitioner, 
She's updating the procedure of her practice, preparing the facility and coordinating with coworkers. And she's also navigating this public health issue as a mom, a partner, a daughter, and a sister, and as a friend. So my name is Sonia Green. I am a physician assistant. I am the chief of the primary care, geriatrics, and palliative care PAs and nurse practitioners at a large hospital in Metro Atlanta. I've been in healthcare uh, for 26 years. I have worked, you know, since I started my whole career in HIV medicine. It's sort of a whole idea of fear among my patients. It's it's been a kind of permeating thing. So I think that's interesting. Could you elaborate on what you were just saying? This really is a time of such deep uncertainty. We're so used to being experts. And yet all of us, no matter our experience as clinical providers or healthcare experts or infectious disease experts, are still facing so many unknowns. Um, and so I think that's a particularly trying for the community at large because they're looking for expert advice, and yet the expert advice, we don't know. And so it's sort of how do you decide and navigate and reassure and make action into a lot of unknowns. Did you know that on your uh, website of your, um, you know, essentially your CV that you have a 4.8 out of five star rating? I did it. Oh, you looked me up. <laughs> Fancy. You're like higher than is like actually possible on Uber's algorithm. <laughs> that's a nice thing. It's that I I work hard. I mean, that's really at the end of the day, the thing that does sustain me and has sustained me through this twenty six year career in healthcare is um, the day-to-day, like when you close the door and you're alone with the patient in a room, and it's really the most intimate of careers uh, where you not only hear patient stories and hear their fears and hear their trials and challenges and vulnerable moments, but you've touched them. Physically, and even in this time when we're so scared, and especially when I worked in HIV, just that power of the touch, the power actually of the fearless touch, meaning I'm touching you without fear, I'm touching you because we're here together. It's really been the thing that's been the sustaining and um, driving part of my career that's kept me filled filled up all these years. What is one thing that's uh, bringing you joy or relief? Yes, it is actually spring in Georgia, and we have had endless rain, and the sun is out, and my windows are open, um, and I'm planning to be outside, which seems to be a recommended health activity as well. So uh, that's my plan today, to be outside and be in the sun and uh, get away from my computer. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Antoinette Ward, Sonia Green, and Gail Reed. If you have questions about women working on the front lines fighting the pandemic, 
You can leave us a review on Apple or email us at thewomenpod at gmail.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And we'll be back next week with more from women who are on the front lines fighting the coronavirus and COVID-19. Take care and be safe.